There has to be courage to think about problems in a way that other people don't think about them. That's where the aha moments come from. I'm Jane Groven, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. Everybody is talking about cancer and the immune system. It's changing the way we think about treatment. So do you think we'll see the end of cancer in our lifetime? I don't because it's such a complicated disease, but I do think it will be better managed as a chronic disease in our lifetime? Hopefully, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know like the medical side behind it, but yeah, something hopefully. Yeah, I definitely think we'll see the end of cancer in our lifetime. I would like to believe that that's true, but we all know how challenging the biology is. I just, I think it's getting better, but in my lifetime, I don't think it's going to be a cure for it. I don't think. You can't control it, and you can't prolong life, you know, at this point. But being a cure-all, no, I don't. Today, I'm talking with Ira Melman. Ira is one of the biggest names in the exciting field of cancer immunotherapy. And I'm not just saying that because I actually work with him every day. Ira is the former head of the Yale Cancer Center. He's now head of the Department of Cancer Immunology Research at Genentech. Welcome, Ira. How did you get here in the area of cancer immunotherapy? I think, in fact, you began your academic life, so to speak, as a musician. I began my life as a musician. It's, although my father was a scientist, he was a chemist, no offense to my chemistry colleagues, he always said the chemists were the most boring people in the world and that whatever I do, I shouldn't go into science. So they started me in music lessons, almost anything else to keep me away from science, I think, from the time I was five. I went to a music conservatory, but that didn't last very long because everybody else, I think, was more serious than me. And how did you settle on biology? Was this a particular project or mentor or teachers at the time? Yeah, it was a particular mentor. It was a plant biochemist. Plant biochemistry is a long way away from cancer immunology. Yeah. Or maybe not. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's science. And where you learn to do science is more important than what you actually learn to do at that time. You learn a process. You learn to love it. And if you don't love it, you don't do it. Or learn, you don't do well at it. Or you don't do well at it. Or you're miserable all the time. You learn criteria. You learn techniques. You learn when to accept something as being true or not. So all of these things are basic tools. And it doesn't matter if you're studying plants or worms or humans or anything else. Science is a process. Really great scientists will love any problem that he or she is given to do. So it didn't matter. And at that point, I knew nothing anyway, so we were studying some algae. But what was important about the experience was that all he had were these, you know, little kids, these undergraduates running around. So he took us in the lab and treated us like graduate students and postdocs. And you got such a sense of what the discovery process was like. The things that you were reading about in textbooks and, and reading about in journal articles, you can do it. You can participate in that process. You can think of an idea. You can come up with a hypothesis and then design experiments to test it. And that was just so intoxicatingly fulfilling that 
how can you not do that? And this way I got to interact with a real scientist there, even though I was a 18, 19 year old little, I can't use the word on radio. Our bodies are being constantly bombarded with bugs, pathogens, bacteria, viruses. And, you know, I, you, all of us expect our immune systems just to deal with this, right? So how does the immune system do this? The immune system is really clever. Before you're born, the immune system is educated to recognize all of the things that belong to you, that belong to individual cells. We call this self. So that means whenever anything after birth, anything comes into your body that is different from self, that thing is usually some type of a microbe or virus or allergen from outside. The immune system sees it not as self, but as foreign. And as a consequence of that, it mounts a protective response. So the whole purpose of the immune system is to really protect you against nasty things that happen to come in from the outside. When you're mounting an immune response to a foreign or an outside pathogen, the immune system gets activated, you fight the disease and the immune response contracts and you maintain this memory. But what's up with cancer? Well, cancer is something that happens after you're born in the huge majority of cases. And cancer cells, although they are far more similar to your normal cells than they are to things like an incoming bacterium, they do have some very specific changes that are genetic in nature that distinguish the cancer cell from the normal cells. So as a consequence of that, again, in principle, the immune system should be able to detect them as foreign and mount a response against them. Why is the cancer still invisible to the immune system? That's a great question. I think um, there are probably two reasons, which is first, the changes that occur are really pretty subtle. So unless the immune system is looking really carefully, it's not going to pick them up. Second is that even if the immune system does pick them up, a response starts. But then one of the essential and really nifty features of the immune system is that the responses are self-limited because if the responses were to anything, even if it was a virus, if the response was allowed to go in an unchecked fashion, the immune system would be creating so many toxins and so much inflammation that you would eventually die from an overactive response to something that the immune system was trying to protect you against. So in cancer, what happens is that you start a response, and then that response, because it is incapable of killing off all of the cancer cells, the response is effectively turned off in any one of a number of different ways. So it's not so much that the cancer is necessarily invisible, but that the response is attenuated in accordance with the normal mechanisms that the immune system uses to prevent chronic inflammation and damage to the host, meaning you, as a consequence of chronic inflammation. Jane. That is Wellington, my producer. Why can't we boost the immune system somehow? It's been tried and really hasn't worked out so far. We use vaccines very successfully for fighting or setting up memory to foreign pathogens. And this was tried, right, for cancer as well, but it failed pretty much dismally. Yeah, vaccines failed. Well, let me back up for a second. What the vaccines are or were or what any vaccine is, you inject somebody with something that you want to generate long lasting immunity to. And this works really well for viruses and bacteria and the like. The use of vaccines in cancer involved taking proteins that were thought to be specific to cancer cells. Problem was twofold. One is the proteins that were chosen were not good choices because they were not really these mutant proteins that really do drive cancer. And second, um, 
then perhaps even more importantly, what happened in all of these vaccine studies is that you can inject your vaccine, the immune system responds, and then the immune system, as soon as it makes a response, turns itself off by, again, virtue of this negative feedback loop that tries to keep a lid on the severity of immune responses in order to prevent the immune system from overreacting and killing the host. So that balance is all screwed up and the vaccines were never able to drive a sufficiently large an immune response to actually do anything. And then the cancer cells and every other normal cell in the body protects itself, protected itself against these vaccines. Over the last five, 10 years maybe, that realization really came to be a major, major new breakthrough in conceptual understanding of how the immune system works that immune responses were subject to a series of positive and negative regulators, checkpoints that balance the ability of immune response to protect you from something and the need to protect yourself from an overactive immune response. So I think when that was understood, people started looking for what the nature of those negative feedback loops are and then decided, well, okay, what happens if we interfere with the negative feedback? Maybe we'll get a better response to the cancer. So by unleashing, by taking the brakes off those negative checkpoints, we may be able to reactivate the immune response. Exactly. Targeting these checkpoint pathways are proving really transformative in the clinic, right, across multiple different types of tumours. Do they fit into the current uh, treatment paradigms of you know, radiation, surgery, chemotherapy? Or do you think this kind of approach will actually displace some of these current treatment paradigms? I think kind of both, because it's not as if that the other things that one does for cancer patients, such as surgery or radiation, or even some chemotherapy or targeted therapy, it's not as if they don't work. They do, and sometimes they bring very good benefit. More often than not, though, unfortunately, the benefit is of limited duration. So because if you don't treat someone in a way that eradicates every last cancer cell, which I can tell you is a very difficult bar to reach, then that treatment also has to have enabled the generation of an anti-cancer immune response. And that then gets back to all of the problems we've been discussing concerning all of the negative regulatory features, all of the checkpoints that come to bear. So if you take any of these so-called standard of care treatments and use them in a way that does not kill off the immune system... Or, or dampen it down, as you were referring to earlier. Yeah, then you could use them to actually amplify the benefit that you get from standard of care. And in fact, from preclinical or mouse studies, we're finding that to be so. Others are finding that to be so. So that even conventional chemotherapies that people hate because they make you lose your hair and all this stuff, turns out that they actually have a very, very strong effect in modulating the immune response. There are an increasing number of studies now that say that the ability of these agents to actually have an effect on cancer is already tied to the immune system, which is really quite remarkable. Jane, does this mean that our immune system has been playing a role in cancer treatments all along? That's exactly right, but we didn't see it because we were researching in our own separate silos. Immunology was a separate field of study, and most studies of cancer biology were done in systems where no attention was paid at all to the immune system. Now, increasingly, we are joining forces to look at these questions together to uncover some really cool new biologies. So busting down these silos is what is proving to be transformative, right? Oh, absolutely. 
And I think there's a big lesson there, too, which is also repeated again if you go through many, many examples in the history of science, is that breakthroughs are made at, more often than not, at interface sites, and not by just plugging away on the same thing that you happen to have been doing for 10, 15 years. It's only when you, you make a, a quantum leap across into another area and realize there's a connection, you can then activate another mechanism, leverage understanding elsewhere, and then that's where the aha moments come from. There has to be a mirthful creativity and courage to think about problems in a way that other people don't think about them. And the easiest way to do that, particularly if, like me, you're not particularly smart, is to go where other people aren't and ask why are they not there. Jane, what does he mean by go where people aren't? Well, there are a lot of choices in research, but really limited time to pursue all questions. It's really important to look at what will be transformative, which often means trying experiments and going down paths where not much is already known. What's next? Where do we start moving towards more rapidly and where does the field go from here? Well, I think there's two different ways of looking at it. One is I'm a big proponent of that if you know something works, build off of that because that's where the only validated biology is. So there are multiple negative regulators. Let's continue to work on those because interfering with more of them could very well bring additional and transformative benefit because most people are not cured even with these immunotherapies. Their tumors may go away and they may stay away for a long time, but the cancer may still be there. That's one view. The other view is then to start looking around the rest of this so-called cancer immunity cycle, which is everything really is determined in the first instance by the number and the quality of the T cells that you have against a cancer or against a tumor. So can you make more of them? And can you make more of them by combining your immunotherapy with standard of care agents? Or can you make more of them, again, if you go back and now redesign your vaccines in a fashion that takes into account everything that we've learned about cancer? The tumor is in one place, the T cells are being made someplace else. How do you direct the T cells to where the cancer is? And it turns out that there's a lot of interferences a lot of different types of boundaries and fences that have to be overcome. And we're starting to understand what comprises those boundaries and fences. And you can interfere with them to try and help the T cells get to where they need to go, kind of like helping salmon swim back upstream by creating ladders around dams and things. We can do that. We can do that scientifically if we understood what the ladders had to look like and where the dams actually were. But I think the science is now starting to progress so rapidly and in such a nice direction that those types of understandings are really revealing themselves to us. I just want to end by bringing up a dirty little four-letter word, a cure. We've been trained as perhaps scientists to not use this word, but do you think for cancer and treatment of cancer with the onset of this whole anti-tumor immunity field that we can start evoking that word again? Um, yes, I think we can and I think we should. And the reason is not really having anything to do with the conceit about the field and how wonderfully it works, but rather gets back to just the fundamental feature of the immune system. When you get a virus infection, your immune system will cure you of that virus infection. 
the virus goes away. You have no infection anymore. Not only does you get cured, but you then are protected against subsequent infections by the same virus. That's simply how the immune system works. It's adaptive, it eliminates threats, it eliminates and kills off foreign bodies. So if we are able to activate the immune system in the right way and to a sufficient extent, it should perform that type of curative function against cancer as well as it does against any microbial infection that the immune system was really, by evolution, devised to deal with. It's certainly an incredibly exciting time for both patients and researchers in the field. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Ira, for talking with us today. You're welcome, and I thank you for having me. If you enjoyed that chat half as much as I did, be sure to tell your fellow science fans about the show. Like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new show. And now, for me, it's back to the lab.